This is what the Word of God says. It says, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Let's put it up there, shall we? The world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. He will receive a blessing from the Lord and righteousness from God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of God of Jacob, Selah. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is the King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. I'm just going to come a bit closer. You just see Miles. I'll just come out here. Just... <laughs> okay, Alan, here we go. Right. Oh, no, I wonder that. <laughs> we, a previous church that I was in was led by a guy called Ray Gaden. And uh, we, when, before we had chairs, this has nothing to do with the sermon, actually. Before we had chairs, uh, we had pine-stripped pews that we got from an old church put into the building. It was really interesting that actually most churches fill up from the back. You know, they're, they're, nobody wants to sit by the loony called the pastor at the front or the guy leading the worship, as you can see. So they're, they're like that. So Ray Gaden uh, told people uh, that what he'd done is that he connected up the pews into a mechanism that he had a button behind the pulpit that what he would do was that when the service started he would press the button and all the pews would move forward and the front one would just tip underneath the, the earth like that. Ready? I'm going to press. <laughs> yeah, ruin and you're just going underground. Okay, let's try and put some... Uh, stuff onto this. The background, very short background. Uh, we're looking uh, at, uh, we've looked at together Psalm 22, Psalm 23 and Psalm 24. They actually come together as a block. They should be read uh, as a block. And uh, so when you're reading them in the Bible, don't pick out Psalm 23 because it's nice. Read it in context, Psalm 22, 23 and 24, and you'll get the idea of what God is wanting to say. Uh, previously, we looked at Psalm 23, where, where it expresses the need uh, pr- for provision in the desert. There's always a need for provision in the desert, isn't there? And the pilgrimage through valleys, so we know that we are, we're moving through valleys, and then the desire to dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So Psalm 24 moves us on from that experience and we arrive to the city of Jerusalem. We've arrived there. And the approach uh, to the temple and the convergence uh, to, uh, of the house of God by a seeking people. And uh, 
So that's what I want you to imagine, that you've come through all the, the issues that are faced in Psalm 23. Uh, Jerusalem's before you, the temple is in front of you, and you are a gathered crowd pressing in. And that's how I want you to imagine where we are. And uh, the psalm is actually divided into three, just so that the people that want to look at it technically can have a look at it. So verses 1 and 2 is uh, to do with Yahweh's universal authority. Uh, verses 3 to 6, who, who can approach God and how do we do that? And then uh, verses 7 to 10, uh, which are commonly called the pr- pr- processional, that's right, isn't it? The processional uh, verses, which the King of Glory enters the gates of the, of the temple. So I want to do, use those sort of pieces and, and look at it in that way, perhaps not using those headings, but to look at it that way. So firstly, I want to look at Yahweh's creative authority. And there's a reason why the psalmist starts here. We'll come to that reason uh, a, little bit, uh, a little bit later. Verse 1, the earth is the Lord's. He created it. It belongs to him. 1 Samuel 2, verse 8, For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. Psalm 89, verse 11, The heavens are yours, the earth is yours, the world and all that's in it, you have founded them. Why is the psalmist saying that then? Exactly the same reason that uh, it's been said today. And we could say something like this, the stability and security of this creation does not therefore depend on people gathering in Mexico to discuss climate change. They may think so. It doesn't depend upon NATO and how they think that they will govern uh, the world militarily or control. It doesn't depend on the G20 or G8 or whatever on their financial understanding of the world in which we live in. But it depends on people and a right relationship with Yahweh. He's the king. He's the king of glory. It's his creation. God owns all things absolutely. This is what the psalmist is trying to get into our blood. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, or what fills it, or everything in it, if you've got an NIV, I think. You see, Yahweh has concern for all of creation, whether it's inanimate or animate, whether it's vegetation, animals, people. Actually, the boundaries that we see in this world are created by man. They're not created by God. The limitations and the rules we set regarding land and property and things, they're not with him in mind, they're with me in mind. I once uh, travelled to Canada to my cousins. She lives just outside of uh, Toronto in Georgetown. And when I got there, she lived in a house without any fences. So it was quite strange. So we, I was with Richard Miller. We were going to look at the Toronto thing, thought we could go and visit my cousin. So we, we drove the car and we pulled up. 
And we thought, this is strange. It was a house without a front garden. It was a house without back gardens. There was just nothing. There were just houses. So I stopped and sort of, when we just did our politeness, and I said, well, where do you know where to sit? And she said, sit where you like. And I thought, that's really strange. What do you do? Pick up the house, move four down and think, this is nice. I'll put it here. It was, it was just weird because I felt a little bit strange that I hadn't got my little house demarked uh, you know, with my little fence. And, and that's where I said, it, it was a whole housing estate without boundaries. Boundaries that were not there that we create because an Englishman's home is his. Ah. So who created the, the Englishman created it. So we have to think in terms of these sort of things, that we create things for our own self-interest. And it's the same with the borders of the lands in which we live in. We have created them so that other people might not go over them. That's the idea of a border, isn't it? Please don't come over my border. What is our political issue at the moment? Political issue is what? Immigration. What is that at its bottom line? Do not come over my border. So we create these sort of things. And yet Psalm 50 verse 10 says, For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I'd like to suggest that to the farmers. But it is. This is how God perceives it. God perceives everything is his. Which actually means that everything that you have is his. It's not yours. It's his. Whether it be your car, your house, whether it be the clothes that you are, the money that you've earned, according to this scripture, everything is the Lord's. Verse 2. He founded it upon the seas. One of the most powerful elements of the earth is the water. Apparently, so they tell me, two-thirds of the world are covered in water and its depths are still yet to be reached. Isn't that extraordinary? We still haven't yet been to the bottom of the seas. Apparently, this is what scientists tell you, that there are still uh, creatures to be discovered in the depths of the sea that we have not yet discovered. Isn't that extraordinary? There are things on this earth that you and I are still yet to know. That's really exciting, isn't it? You don't know what might come up, do you, one day? Maybe we'll all be leaving Nessie soon. <laughs> but you see, that's the way that it is. This is what something else that scientists say, that the, the resources and the power of the sea are yet to be understood. So scientists say, we haven't got to the bottom of it, we don't know what's there, but its power is still yet to be tamed. That's an extraordinary statement. And yet the Bible tells us that all creation depends on the mercy of God holding back the waters. Holding back the waters. Remember this verse, this, this, uh, uh, the sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact represent, representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. So creation, the water, is held back by him. He's speaking to it. He's saying, no. That's just an extraordinary thing, isn't it? It says, he is before in things 
and in him all things hold together. All things hold together. The land-water tension is being held together by him. He's the Lord of creation. Why? He made creation. He's the creator. He's the creator of all things. There was nothing that Jesus did not make. There was nothing that he didn't create. Paul says there is the creator of things visible and invisible. Why does he say that? Because he wants you to know there are things out there that he has created that you cannot see. He wants you to know how you fit into this creation. He wants you to know that he is God and you're not. Because there are things out there that you think that you, that you are yet to perceive. That's extraordinary, isn't it? Makes you wonder what's in the room right now, doesn't it? What is sitting next to you, Rupert? <laughs> things invisible. Paul adds on heavens and earth, rulers, thrones, dominions, authority. What is Paul doing when he's when he's using these terms, he's actually piling up words to tell you, look, you're not going to find anything in creation that God did not create and that God does not own. He's the Lord over creation. The Lord Jesus Christ is Lord over creation. (laughs) Creation finds its reason for existing in glorifying him. If you look at the passage in Colossians uh, chapter 1, it says this in verse 16, all things have been created by him and what? For him. For him. He, it is created firstly for his good pleasure and not for yours. That's, that's an extraordinary statement because we are people that loves to uh, enjoy creation. And all that brings. But Colossians says that it was created for him and that you have been given the gift of living in something that was created for him. The goal of creation is not so that you might just enjoy it, but that it might bring glory to God. And the issue of that mountain or that river or that sea or that valley being wonderful, well, it is wonderful. But actually, you have to take the next leap. It is wonderful, not because it is wonderful. It is wonderful because it points to who created it. That's the point. The point of it is you can enjoy it, but actually see who's behind it. The glory, as it were, doesn't come to itself. It is pointing to him. So when you wander up that mountain one day and you say, isn't the view great? You have to go, isn't the view great? Fancy that. He created that view for me. That sort of leap. The idea is so that we might worship, so that we might find God. That's why the creation can speak in itself, because the logic is there for people to be able to find God even in what they see. Because the logic can be, well, I can look at this and therefore I can know who created these things. And the reason... Of all this, is, why is this a re- what was happening here in the psalms, with the psalm? The reason for this is to prepare you for who you are about to meet. That's the idea. 
It's the idea of, of the, the, the Yahweh's creative authority. Who am I about to meet? I am about to meet the creator of heaven and earth. That's the idea with it all. And it hasn't changed. Who are we about to meet when we gather on a Sunday, when we gather in small group, when we gather at a prayer meeting where two or three gather? Who are you about to meet? You are about to meet the creator of heaven and earth. Therefore, we should give it and give the things that we do due respect. So, what is then the preparation for us to enter into the presence of God and meet with the creator? of heaven and earth. Because having affirmed the creative power of Yahweh, the sermon now turns its gaze upon who can go there. Because that's the issue, isn't it? With all that power, with all that authority, who on earth can go there? Now, I want you to imagine, I want you to imagine that it's the January sales. And I want you to imagine that... Uh, if you like, we're, we're, we're sort of, I don't know, let's do Selfridges in London. Selfridges has got its sale and it says in the morning that at 7 o'clock everything will be a third off. Absolutely everything in the morning. So you know what happens in the January sales. People begin to camp outside. They begin to sort of gather. And the crowd gets bigger and bigger and bigger until you've got this massive sort of thing. And if you remember, you, you see most, uh, most weeks, well, most years, the, the guys open the door and people run in to it. So there's this huge gathering, but these two doors and people press through. This is what you are reading right now. When you're reading the psalm, you've got a people that have been gathering, gathering, gathering. The crowd is getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And then this question arises. As the crowd are gathering, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? And we're not sure... Uh, But this may have been a question shouted out to the crowd by the priest as the people arrived from their various destinations and gathered. It may have been shouted out, we don't know. And actually, it's still a good question to ask when we gather. It's not a discarded question, it's a good question. Am I free to worship the Lord? Can I... Can I come into his presence today? What qualifies me to stand before the creator of heaven and earth? How should I be in regard to that? Maybe, you know, our worship leaders should stand up and say right at the very, very beginning, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in this holy place? Good question. And the answer is given in verse 4. He who has has clean hands and a pure heart. Now the standard is set very high. Clean hands means innocent hands. And it's an outward measure of the character and righteousness of the person. Such people are free or exempt from guilt and Therefore, punishment, 
They're the ones that you look at and you think, yeah, now that's a good person. This is what we're looking at here. Yeah, well, I know that person. They live well. We can test the way that they speak. We can test the way they behave. We can see how they live. They are exemplary in the way that they behave. But a pure heart shifts the issue of righteousness from external to internal. To the internal nature of the person. To a right relationship with God. By not by what people see, but by what has changed in the person's heart. Now we know this because we're told in Scripture the Lord doesn't look on the things that people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And in this Scripture here, in this psalm, it says, Who does not lift his soul to what is false? And the word soul in Hebrew is self. But more than self or more than me expresses the nature of the heart to seek other influences. So it's, a, it's sort of who does not bother much about himself but bothers about whom he worships. So you see this repeated in Psalm 25 verse 1. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. Therefore, you are the Lord. You are the only one that influences me. We're looking at absolute loyalty of the heart. That's, that's what we're looking at in this scripture. To you, Lord. You're the, you're the one. So it's something that's in there. Have I, the psalmist saying, I will let the person in who just said, I'm 100% for you. There's no 2% or 3%. No, I'm 100% for you. And it says there that he will receive a blessing from the Lord. And it's difficult because you can't quite reach the heart of this one. Because you need to catch it a little bit. Uh, Blessing means that you are lifted up into the presence of the Lord. It does helpfully describe blessing as not the thing the Lord does, but actually the presence is the blessing. And it's important because I don't know whether you've caught this yet, but we, we do live in, in a consumerized world where the things that you get bring you blessing. I don't know whether you're f- fed up with me, but I just think our calendar in regard to adverts just drives me round the bend. Because I can guarantee you this, that beca- by the time we get to January, what will we find in the supermarkets? Easter eggs. It's true. Did you not think this year that Christmas started in October? Did you September? And, you, and I don't know whether you sometimes like... I, I sometimes go, I do not want to think about this at this point. Do you not feel like... Feel, you feel like, I don't want to think about it. You are forcing me to think about Christmas in October. Well, fortunately, I did my Christmas shopping in August. <laughs> no, I didn't. I'm lying. But... but We're sort of driven by it. And then what it does is that it seeps into the church. 
And the church becomes a church about what you get. So you can see this because people will come and ask you different questions. They'll come and say to you, have you got a youth meeting? No. Well, I'll go to that church then. Have you got a children's work? Well, actually, we've only got three. Ah, well, actually, this church has got five. Oh, we'll go there then. And we make church, we make church and choices. And it's, it's almost like the consumerism presses into the church and says, well, this is what you can go. So you get people will ask you about, what do you do as a church? And I've had loads of emails in regard to this. And it's sort of, uh, it's sort of well, what, do you, what can you do for me? What can, you, what can you give me? And actually here, what, it's not the things that we get that are a blessing. It's him who's the blessing. Jesus is always the blessing. If he gave you nothing, he is still a blessing. If we actually had to walk through the valley of the shadow of death for the rest of our lives, Jesus is still a blessing. It's him and his presence, not what he gives for us. Do you remember those scriptures that you see in the Bible? You know, it says, you know, we'll do something for us, Jesus. And those who demand a sign, do, you know, in a wicked, come from a wicked generation. That's sort of, because that's how we live. With it. We live according to this. We don't live in God's Him and His glory. That I'm caught up with Him and what He has done for me. That is the blessing. The blessing is in the, the, the incarnation it is in the life on earth. It is in the death on a cross. It is in the, ascent, the, the resurrection, the ascension, the exalted to the right hand of the Father, and that Him returning again, all those things, they are the blessing. They are the blessing. And that's what we have to push back sometimes and say, and sing, it's all about you, Jesus. It's all about you. So he will receive a blessing from the Lord. Not only does he receive a blessing, he receives righteousness from the God of his salvation. He is declared right to enter God's presence. See, righteousness is declared by God, not by us. Please hear this, folks. This is a pastoral issue here. Righteousness is declared by God It's never declared by you. It's never to do what you feel about you. It's always to do what he says about you. Righteousness is declared from him. It's not, you can't say, I just feel so awful about what I have done. It isn't ever declared by you. It is always declared by God. It's wonderful, isn't it? I just think that's just amazing. It's not up to me. It's declared by God. He says, who can approach him? And he says, I'll make that decision for you. Magnificent. Ha! You just think, wow. Because here you are, well, have I got a, a pure heart? Is, you know, what about my clean hands and all that sort of stuff? And we're trying to work it out and, you know, all that sort of stuff. And, well, you know, I am trapped in the consumer thing. Yeah, that's all me and I feel all this. And then he says, actually, the decision to be able to come into my presence is not yours. It's mine. And it it's all depends on what? His righteousness. Then in verse 6, such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. 
What generation? A generation that understands that their righteousness cannot get them into the presence of God. That it's God's righteousness that gets them into the presence of God. And this is the hidden question amongst those of this generation seeking to to face God. Yes, I want to descend to the hill of the Lord. I want to do it with a clean hands. I want to do it with a pure heart. I want to put aside all other influence. I want you to have my whole loyalty. You will be my only influence. I'll be content not with what you do for me, but what you are. Yes, Lord. I have nothing to bring. You make me acceptable. Who can ascend to the hill of the Lord? Those who are declared righteous by him. We can. Isn't that wonderful? He decides it. Leon Morris said this in his commentary. The righteousness we have is not of our own. It comes from God's good gift in Christ. But we will be righteous. Notice this means more than being pardoned. The pardoned criminal bears no penalty. He bears a stigma. Isn't that true? Isn't that true? If you are a criminal, you still know that you did it, don't you? Even though you might have been served your time, even though you might have got, you still know that you did it. He is a criminal and he is known as a criminal, albeit an, an, an unpunished one or a, a not condemned one. The justified sinner bears no penalty. He is righteous. He is a man with his, he is not a man with his sins about him any longer. That's why the scripture says that your sins are as far as the way as the east is from the west. I have declared you righteous. You are fully acceptable. You are not a criminal saying, well, I did this, Lord, and I was a bit nasty then. There was this, Lord. God doesn't see you that way at all. He says, no, you're clothed in righteousness. You're clothed in my son. Come into my presence. He doesn't sort of say, and by the way, watch the humpy thing on your back. (laughs) Well, what's the humpy thing? It's a bit of the past. Jesus doesn't say, bring the past into the present. He doesn't say it at all. He says, I don't see your past. I see my son. You are acceptable. This is a little bit quaint, but go with me. John Bunyan, Pilgrim's Progress, was actually tormented about this issue. One moment he was righteous, he could enter the presence of God. The next moment he felt that he was there with a humpty back, with all his sins around him. You listen to the description of this. When he understood, I am righteous, I can enter the presence of God. He says, one day I was passing into the field. So God can meet you anywhere. This sentence fell upon my soul. Thy righteousness is in heaven. It's not on earth with you. It is in heaven. And methought, withal, I saw with the eyes of my soul Jesus Christ at God's right hand. There! I say, was my righteousness, so that whatever I was or whatever I was doing, God could not say to me, he lacks my righteousness. 
for that was just in front of him. I also saw, moreover, that it was not my good frame of heart that made my righteousness better, nor yet my bad frame that made my righteousness worse. For my righteousness was in Jesus Christ himself, the same yesterday and today forever. Now, did my chains fall off my legs indeed? I was loosened from my afflictions and my irons. My temptations fell away so that from, from that time those dreadful scriptures of God left, left off trouble, uh, left off, sorry, that, blah, blah, blah. so that... So that time, so dear, so that time, that, so dear. (laughs) Right, come on, hold on, okay. Got it. I was loosened from my afflictions and my irons. My temptations also fled away. So that from that time, those dreadful scriptures of God left off to trouble me. Now, I went also home rejoicing for the grace and love of of God, who can ascend the hill of the Lord? Those who are righteous, who are righteous, those who are declared righteous by God. Who are they? It is you. You can enter. You can go. You can stand. Why? Because you are declared fully righteous. Why is it fully righteous? Because Jesus is perfect. That's the issue. August Top Lady, remember this? Rock of ages, cleft for me. Nothing in my hand I bring. I have nothing to add to it. Simply to your cross I cling. Naked I come to you for dress. Helpless look to you for grace. Foul to the fountain fly. Wash me, Saviour, or I die. Not only should he be honoured as the one who died to pardon us, and not only should he be honoured as the one who sovereignly works faith in obedience in us, but he should be honoured as the one who provides perfect righteousness for us and full acceptance with an endorsement from God. You are declared righteous. So, you can enter. So what happens? You've passed the mark. You can enter into the presence of God. And the King of glory comes to meet you. Fantastic. You've gained admission. You've not had to put any money in the slot. You've just got there. It's free. And the gathered throng, they're waiting in anticipation and excitement They await the arrival of the King of Glory. Let's just hope that the arrival of the King of Glory is a bit better than the arrival of Camilla and Prince Charles this week. But anyway, you're waiting the arrival of the King of Glory. Can you imagine now you're in the crowd? You have gained acceptance. It's like going to the premiere of, a th- of whatever it is, film, theatre, whatever. Because in the crowd, you're beginning to talk. You're beginning to say, I wonder what it'll be like. 
as the crowd gather. I don't know whether you were like that when you were out there this morning, whether you were saying, when we get in there, I wonder what it's going to be like. I wonder how God's going to meet with us today. But this is what the psalmist was experiencing because the crowd are gathering and they're going, who is this king of glory? It's going, what's it going to be like? Who's the king of glory? The king of glory is coming. It's an extraordinary thing. It's bursting of emotion and excitement. It's actually literally winding up expectation of glory, strength, majesty, power, victory, the whole thing. Let me ask you a question. Did you wind each other up this morning? Did you ring each other up and say, Hello? Hello? Stephen Hawkins here? Yes, Stephen? Who is the king of glory? Boom! Put it down. (laughs) 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 Yes, could it? But it's just really interesting, isn't it? Because the psalmist tells us how to experience God. And one of the things he's saying is it isn't just dependent on your righteousness, it's depending on you winding each other up a little bit. You know, did you go around and go, it's the king of glory! We're going to meet the King of Glory. Oh, that King of Glory. There was not a... Oh, Rupert. There was none of it. What did he say? No, he said, Cardiff lost. That's going to prepare me to meet the King of Glory. Come on, let's worship God. Cardiff lost. He sort of, it's get out the car, the king of glory. It's that sort of thing. You, it's literally, they are winding each other up, asking this question, who's the king of glory? So, let the phone calls begin. <laughs> then somebody answers the question and shouts it out. Somebody goes... Who's the king of glory? Somebody asks the question, who is the king of glory? In a minute, I'm just going to... You repeat, but shout it. Okay, okay, right, okay. Somebody in the crowd asks the question, who is... This King of Glory. Who is this King of Glory? And somebody shouts out, The Lord of Hosts! He's the King of Glory! Can you imagine this? This is in the crowd. They're beginning to sort of shout it out. And anticipation and expectation is beginning to rise. The Lord of Hosts! He's the King of Glory! It's that sort of thing. You, can you imagine this now? The buzz... Must have been going magnificent. It must have been extraordinary. We're going to meet the Lord of hosts. We're going to meet the King of glory. And the doors are not open yet. It's like you being not let into the Catherine Finch Centre and being wound up like the sort of comedian before the act starts. This is what is happening in this psalm. Suddenly... Somebody lets out another cry. Who is the king of glory? The Lord of hosts is the king of glory. Then somebody shouts, Lift up your heads, O you gates. Lift up your heads, O you gates. 
Whoa. You know, lifting up your head is the opposite to sorrow and a sign of hope. And the gates are thrown open. The gates are thrown open as they press through to meet him. And the gates of the temple are literally lifted up. They were horizontally on pivots. So you had to look up. And if you're going to meet the King of Glory, you have to look up, Tim Harmon. You must look up. You cannot meet the King of Glory when thinking, oh no, you know, my life is grim. I, Callie tells me that the kids have got this statement, but it's a good job that one of them is there, that I say, life's grim. But here it tells us that if we have a life's grim attitude, we won't meet the King of Glory. Because we've got to be in anticipation and look up. And it says, lift them up, O ancient doors. The Hebrew behind ancient is venerable, or long time, or eternity. It employs that implies that the doors of your heart are there for a long time. Well, I think you've got a heart that's there for a long time. And it actually implies that you can shut them, that you can close them, that you can not lift up your head, that you can close the door on your heart and not experience the presence of God. How do we know that? Because Nehemiah goes to restore Jerusalem. And when he gets there, he says that the gates are in ruin. I want to ask you this question. Are your gates in ruin? Have you closed them? It was just really, I mean, we had some fun last week, didn't we, dancing? We do it again because Noella's here, so, so we've got to do this. But you know, sometimes we can just, we can not engage in God because our our, our doors have just been closed. It no longer has the effect that it used to have. And when you read some of the gates in the city of Jerusalem, you realize that all our gates are different. They all function in different way because we're different gifting, but we can all, show, we can all close them. So I don't know whether you're a sheep gate. You know, through this, the, the sacrificial animals came through, but you can close your sheep gate I don't know whether you're a fish gate. Through the gate, the fishermen would bring their catch. They were the practical people, the one that did some provision. But you can close your gate too. I don't know whether you might be an old gate. The old gate led to the new quarter. Perhaps you're just one of the old gates here. You know, old gates can be closed too. I don't know whether you are a valley gate or a dung gate. Or the fountain gate. But sometimes what we have to do is that we have to lift up our heads and open our gates so that the King of Glory can come in. And I want to ask you, please, unblock your gates. Why? Because the King of Glory wants to come in. He wants to do it. He's knocking at your door saying, let me in. Just remove it. But I want to tell you, finally, about another picture that's here. I want to talk to you about another crowd, and this crowd, and other crowds. 
Acts chapter 1, verses 50 and 53, it says this, that when he led, him, led them out to the vicinity of Bethany, he lifted up his hands and he blessed them. And while he was blessing them, he left them, and he was taken into heaven. Then they worshipped him and they returned to Jerusalem with great joy, and they stayed continually at the temple praising God. This was a small crowd watching on a hill, quite sad, watching as their Jesus rose into heaven. Just a small number. But there was another crowd. There was a crowd in heaven of which the Bible says no man can number waiting in heaven. You've got this small crowd down here watching him ascend and you've got this crowd in heaven which no man can number watching him rise towards them. Because here on earth is a sad day but here in heaven it's a coronation day. They're out. They're ready to crown the king. King of kings, Lord of lords. This is the day when the shepherd of Psalm 23 becomes the king of glory of Psalm 24. This is the day that they can crown him because he died on the cross, rose from the grave, finished his priestly work. This was a coronation day. His work's done. His mission completed. This was a victorious day. The applause from heaven must have been extraordinary as he's left this crowd. Can you imagine that Jesus is rising and maybe he's hearing the dismay and the tears of this small crowd on earth? And as he's beginning to rise, the noise from heaven gets greater and greater and greater and greater as he ascends towards heaven, as all heaven applauds the King of kings and the Lord of lords who's completed his work, who's triumphed over the grave and he's about to be crowned King of kings and Lord of lords. And why could he ascend straight into the presence of God? How was it that his doors and his gates were wide open? Because he was the only one to have clean hands and pure hearts. So, in heaven, they say this. Swing wide the gates. Open the doors. Applaud. Worship. Angels going potty. Seraphims wetting themselves with delight. Elders, uncontained excitement as the King of Kings comes and takes his place at the right hand of the Father. Tearful parting, but an explosion of pomp in heaven that shook heaven and earth. There's a guy called Arthur Tozer Russell. Apparently he wrote 51 hymns. This is one of his. He says, The Lord ascended up on high. The Lord has triumphed gloriously in power and might excelling. The grave and hell are captive led. 
Lo, he returns our glorious head to his eternal dwelling. The heavens with joy receive their Lord by saints, by angels, by hosts adored. O day of exaltation, O earth, adore the glorious King. His rising, his ascension sing with grateful adoration. The King of glory has come. The point? We have to believe that this is not the end. That there will be a reunion with the one we love in exactly the same way. Jesus had given them full assurance that in just a few weeks earlier, he had told the disciples that he would come. He said, For the powers of heaven will be shaken, and they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Acts chapter 1, verse 11. We find out that Jesus had departed uh, angels assured, uh, assured the disciples, this Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you, as you, uh, as, as you saw him go to heaven. His departure is not final. There's a reunion. The king of glory is coming. So Jesus left a small crowd on a hill. He entered with noise and triumph with a great crowd in heaven. Now, Revelation chapter 1, verse 7. Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him. Every eye. And ever since the Son of Man came, men and women have wanted to see Jesus. They've wanted to see the King of glory. Here in the Psalms, they're pressing in, pressing in. We see all the way through. Do you remember Philip said to Nathaniel, Come and see. Do you remember Zacchaeus who climbed up into a sycamore tree for the saviour he wanted to see? The Apostle Paul wrote, we're going to see through a glass jar darkly, but where then we'll see him face to face. John seemed to hang everything on this thing. He said, he, do, he does not yet appear that when we, when we where, what we shall be, but when he appears, we will be like him, for we will see him as he is. We will see the king of glory. You will watch the lips move. You will look at the nose, the ears, the hair. You'll stand in front of him. You know that voice that you've longed and thought, what does it sound like? Does it sound like Nigel, squeaky and high or whatever? No, you'll hear the voice. It won't be just this mystic thing. Well, it came through a prophetic word with the voice. You will hear the voice of Jesus speaking to you. Extraordinary. He will stand next to you. You'll look upon him. You'll see the, the, the holes in his hands and in his feet and in his side. You will gaze upon him. You will see the King of glory. Titus 2 verse 13. The appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. The appearing of the glory. I love this in Revelation. I saw one like the Son of Man, clothed with a long robe, with a golden girdle around his breast. 
His head and his hair was white as, was white as wool, white as snow. His eyes were flames of fire. His feet like burnished bronze, refined as in a furnace. His voice was like the two, sound of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth, he issued a sharp two-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in full strength. <laughs> That's a vision. But you will stand and be able to say, this is what the king of glory looks like. Behold, he's coming on the clouds of heaven with power and gl- great glory. We will glorify the Lord and enjoy him forever. Do you love these words from Timothy? Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord of right, the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day, and not only me, but also all who have loved his appearing. Are you waiting for the entrance of the King of Glory? Are your gates open, your doors swung wide? Do you love the idea that the King of Glory can come? Is your heart stirred by the fact of the King of Glory? Are you looking forward to your crown of righteousness? Is this coming back a great hallelujah to you? Oh. So we find that the psalmist comes to the end of all this because suddenly the psalmist has pressed through into the very temple and the presence of God is upon him. And suddenly he's in the presence of the King of glory, the Lord of hosts. And he stood there. And you think, now then, write something about what you see. And he writes something like this, Rupert. He looks upon the Lord and he gazes into his face and he experiences the presence. And he goes, and it looks like that. Because he just cannot describe what he's doing. Selah in the Psalms occurs 71 times, three times in Habakkuk. And if you look in your Bible, it will do something like this. It will say, Selah. And then have a footnote saying, the meaning is uncertain. (laughs) I want to suggest to you, that's because it is just awesome. It's just that. What do I say? What do we know? We know this. Selah means it marks a place. It means it's an appeal. It means it's a bystander calling for a response. It probably means lift up or it probably means, ready, lift up, not your doxology, but lift up a benediction. Hey? Do you know I discarded benediction years ago? And here it is, lift up. And here he comes. So, who is the king of glory? The Lord of hosts is the king of glory. Go for it then. That's what it is. There's only one response. Lift up. Who's the king of glory? The Lord of hosts is in the king of glory. Come on. And the whole people burst. Why is that? Because, you know, the king of glory demands a response. That's it. The Lord of hosts demands a response. When Moses saw the glory of the Lord, 
There was no question in mind what he should do. You read Psalm 29, verse 2. And Moses quickly bowed his head towards the earth and he worshipped. Sorry, that's Exodus 34. Psalmist, ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of the holiness. Let me encourage you. Please be defined by this as a lifter up of the king of glory. That is the best thing that you can do. This is the best thing that you can do. Be defined. Be, be a seller person. So let it, let it be just said, well, what, what do we call Steve Hawkins? Steve Hawkins, open bracket, seller, close brackets. On his grave. Wouldn't that be wonderful? How will people remember Steve Hawkins? He was one who, I, who said this, who is the king of glory? The Lord is the king of glory. And from his grave, he says, now, come on, worship him. So that's what I want to do. So I want to give you an opportunity to go berserk. I need the berserk leaders. So here it is. You now have a choice. You have a gate to open and... You have something to fling wide. So shall we do that? Shall we have a bit of fun? Yeah? Don't leave me being the lunatic at the front, okay? <laughs>